Okay, uh, today is uh, Parshat this week is Parshat Mishpatim. And Parshat Mishpatim, as we all know, begins with the rules of the Evid Ivri and of the Amaha Ivriah. And I want to take a look at one particular component in the law of the Amma Ivriah, which seems to inform a much larger scope of law, which is marriage. Uh, and that is the obligations that a husband has towards his wife. Uh, and so we'll take a look at the source text and identify a few problems in the source text. We'll see what the Midrashim have to say about it and a few of the Rishonim. And you might be surprised because the direction, which for many of us is unidirectional and um, and monolithic in its reading is really quite uh, quite diverse as far as the way that it's read. Uh, and then at the end, I'm going to propose a different reading uh, that, you know, something to think about maybe uh, as a different way of looking at the parsha. All right, here's the parsha. Uh, and we're familiar with the laws of the Evid Ivri. And after the Evid Ivri, we are introduced to the Amaha Ivriya. And here it is, Pasuk Zion. And we're going to read this through carefully and just ask the questions. If a man sells his daughter to be an Amma, a maidservant, what does that mean? It literally means she doesn't leave like the Avadim leave. What, what is that talking about? What sort of exiting... Is the uh, the avadim have that is not available to her? So, if you have a suggestion, tell me. But in the meantime, we can move ahead. If you don't, okay, you don't. And then we have a problem, as you could see, that in this parsha, the one ktiv kri difference we have is one of those real funny ones, which is low and low, which is read exactly the same way. But it's written Lamed Aleph, but it's understood to be Lamed Vav. That was the same thing in Bahar, Shalochomat. And so, what does this mean? Imra'ah, if she is bad in the eyes of her master, the master is the guy who bought her, Asher Lo Ya'ada. Now, let's read it the way that it's written. Asher Lo Ya'ada means that he did not um, designate. Designator, good. Designator, uh, and and we understand that that designation means for purposes of marriage. So that means if we read it the way that it's written, if she's not good in his eyes because she's not somebody he wants to marry, then vehefta, he has to allow her to be redeemed. Doesn't mean he lets her go, he has to allow her to be redeemed. And that might be indeed the answer to lote tzeketzeta avadim. And Eved is stuck for six years. And uh, and there's no buying your way out, at least in the way the text presents it. However, the girl has a different option, which is if the master doesn't see her as a potential mate for himself, then uh, he um, he has to uh, he has to let her go or out to allow the family to negotiate her release. Um now, what about the way that it's read? Meaning, asher lo yada, and we understand it to be lamed vav. Meaning, if it's if she's if she's bad in the eyes of her master, asher lo yada. So the truth is, it, it's not a different meaning. 
meaning we understand the word differently, but it doesn't. It ends up meaning the same thing, which is the master to whom she was designated. That he designated her for himself, but she's not good in his eyes, meaning he doesn't want to marry her. Then he has to allow her to be released. In the meantime, either way you read it, he may not sell her to somebody else, and this is now of which is not really because we assume here means that we've already mentioned, which is Evadivri. Evadivri hasn't been mentioned yet. So even though a little later in this parasha, in the same chapter, we're going to hear about what happens when you strike and either injure or or kill your Evid Kanani and there's particular rules, and then particular rules if a shore kills you know, somebody's Evid Kanani, what happens? I have a payment. Evid Kanani is its own class, but it hasn't been mentioned yet. And here there's a reference to Tzay Tavadim. We would assume that's the Avadim we've already mentioned, which is Evid Ivri, which would then mean the he may not sell her to an, another person in his rejecting her, as it were. And that, by the way, is is has good support. Let me show him bring it up from the passage in Malachi Bet that uh, that the rejecting your wife or mistreating your wife is called bigida, like uh, the treachery. And so, in what what the the picture that gets painted here is that when a man sells his daughter as an ama, he's actually doing much more than that. He's selling her as an ama to a man who looks to her as when she gets older a potential mate. Which is why we have the machloket between Yosef Yehuda and Chachamim, whether maot bishonot lekidushin nitnu. According to Chachamim, the money that the father gets from the master when he sells his daughter is kesef kidushin, and that means that the master can then marry her whenever he wants to and doesn't have to give her kidushin. She already got it, or the father already got it. Right. So now, la'am nochrilo yimsholim bigdova. Bigdova here means his rejection of her as a wife. He now doesn't have the chance to sell her to somebody else to kind of start that same train going. If he's not interested in her, the opposite. He's got to let her go or allow the family to negotiate the release. But here's where things get really interesting, as if they weren't interesting yet. Let's say he designates her to his son, which, by the way, is an interesting take, is that he can look at this girl that he's buying at age seven or eight or whatever it is, and say, this could be my future wife. Remember, in the times of Tanakh and throughout the classical period and even the Middle Ages, the, the age difference between husbands and wives was often decades, many decades sometimes. So that shouldn't be so surprising. But let's say that he designates her for his son, which may mean that when he originally bought her as a slave girl, that's what he had in mind. Not that he later changed his mind, but in Noyadena, and here's where the confusion really kicks in. He has to do for her the normal practice for daughters. What does that mean? It's really maybe, maybe it means what? Maybe maybe it means she gets a normal marriage arrangement. She gets a dowry. She gets, you know. Oh, very good. Very good. Excellent. Okay, good. So let's keep that in mind. Treat it like a, a kala. Okay, so now, but watch the, the extent to, he, to hear that we're going to take this, as you'll see. Imacheret yikachlo. Now, imacheret yikachlo, who's the low? 
And so the assumption, of course, is the father, the master. And if the master has several options, which is he can marry this girl. If he doesn't want to marry the girl, he has to allow to negotiate her release. By the way, there's another option, which is he can have her marry his son. Now, by the way, if he marries another woman, we're going to talk about what those three words mean. Her she'er, her ksut, and ona can't be diminished. Who's this girl? Which seems to mean if the master marries her, but he also marries another woman who's not a slave girl, but a wealthy one, whoever it is, Milchas woman, he can't diminish the marital rights of this slave girl who he married. And that's the way we read this parsha halachically. Now, the Eames, we're going to talk about Shek and and what they mean, because we're going to see also a wide divergence of, of approaches. The Eames Shlosh Ela Lo Yasela. If he doesn't do these three things, she goes out for free with no payment. Which three things? What three are there? So right now we have two choices. Choice one is the proximate one. Now, by the way, what does mean? If he doesn't do all three of these things, or if he doesn't do any of these three things, the phrase can be read either way. So if we read it proximately to which means if he doesn't provide her, and then it'll be all three of these, then he has to let her go. Or the way most we've shown him read it, we'll see this, is that he has three options what to do with her, either to marry her, to allow her family to negotiate her payout, or to marry her to his son. But if he doesn't do those, he has to let her go. Right? In which case, now Shloshela doesn't mean all three, it means any of these three. Okay, that's the Parsha with some of its confusion, as we see. Now, let's take a look um, at the... Um, I just want to do this here, make it a little bit more readable. Okay. Let's take a look at the Mechilta. The Mechilta immediately on Sher Ksutan Onah takes the position that She'er means food. The obligation of a husband to give his wife food, maybe. Ksuta means clothing. That's an easy one. And Onata is conjugal relations, right? Which means what the husband gives his wife. That's what Rabbi Yoshia says. Rabbi Yonatan says differently. She'er and Ksut means She'er is your body and Ksut is your clothing. So it means you have to give her clothing that fits her body. If she's tall, if she's short, if she's old, if she's young, etc. And onata is also about clothing because onata means you have to give her clothing suitable for that season. Ona. Right? So then that means that according to Rabbi Yonatan, the only obligation the Torah mandates here is clothing. By the way, these are obligations of a man to his wife. Is clothing. So how do I know you have to feed her? So kavachomer and that's things that are not needed for bare subsistence. You have to give her bare subsistence. You certainly have to give her, right? How about derecheretz? And derecheretz meaning conjugal relations. The answer is that's what the marriage is all about. So certainly if things that are secondary to the marriage, you're obligated, then certainly you're obligated to take care of that, which is essential, which is the conjugal relations. Rebbe says Sheira is actually conjugal relations, and he gets that from Parshat Arayot, Ish Ish, I'll call She'er Besaro, etc. And Onata, he actually reads as Mizonot. Now, the interesting thing is, everybody in this Midrash agrees two things, that the, that the She'er Ksut and Onata is referring to the husband's obligations to his wife. 
And that the person we're talking about now is the master who has married her and has also married another woman can't can't uh, diminish his obligation towards this slave girl who became his wife relative to the other one, to the not slave girl who married. And those three obligations are food, clothing, and conjugal relations. And then just which word means which, we, we tease it out. The Mechilta does the same thing. The Mechilta of Rishim Bar Yochai says the same thing, uses different words, but essentially comes to the same conclusion. And now it also touches on Im Shlosh Eile. The Im Shlosh Eile, the Mechilta here says, Rabbi Eliezer Omer, Zesh Sher Ksut meaning if the husband doesn't provide her with all three of those things, then he has to let her go. Rabbi Kiva turns to him and says, what do you mean? It already says he can't diminish her share sutin or not. So therefore Rabbi Kiva goes on to say, shlosh elam means the three options, which means marry or marry to your son or allow the family to negotiate a release. All right, so we see that both the meaning of the words share sutin or not, which it seems that everybody agrees what at the end of the process they're going to mean as far as uh, obligations of a husband towards his wife. But what each word means is subject to discussion. It becomes academic because in the end you accept all three. And then what, what's V'im Shloshela about? Now, by the way, that's also academic because we agree that if a man marries a woman, he has to take care of her, share ksutin or not, and we know what those mean. And that if the master doesn't have the girl marry himself or his son, and there's no negotiated release, then he has to let her go. So at the end of the process, we're going to end up with the same thing. But the question is how we got there. Now, the Gemaraim Ketubot um, does the same thing, which is suggests different opinions and different approaches. But Rava takes things a little bit further than we've seen so far. Amar Rava, Haitana Savar, and that's because we see in the Gemara different approaches about the role of mizonot, feeding your wife. If it is a takana de Rabbanan, and we'll see the Rabban weigh in on this, or it's Doraita. And Rava says, here we have a Tana who thinks it's Doraita, which means not everybody thinks that. Now, by the way, what we just saw in the Mechilta, both Rabbi Shmuel and Rabbi, Rabbi Shemba Yochai, took the position that mizonot is Doraita. The question is, which word? Or do we get it from a Kalva Chomer? And here you see explicitly that it might be Durabanan. And now, by the way, in the Gemara, you see the classic interpretation. I say classic because it's what we know from Rashi. Share is food, suit is clothing, onata is, is conjugal relations. Rabbi Lazar says, Sheira is ona, right? And Ksuto and, and, uh, and onata is mizonot. And also when Yaakov says, Sheir Ksut, again, give her clothing that fits her body. And onata means give her clothing that fits the season, which means all three of the things are about clothing. She'er onata means clothing that fits her body and fits the season. And then Rabbi Yosef comes in and says, what's she'era? She'era is about conjugal relations, but about something particular. Zu kiruv basar, meaning that he has to provide for his wife not only conjugal relations, but intimate conjugal relations. I know it sounds like a redundant phrase. But Shiloin Hagba Minag Parsin, our Yosef's in Paras, so he's lambasting them. They stay dressed when they have relations. He said, no, you have to be naked and you have to have that intimacy of flesh together. That's the obligation of She'er in that context. Um, you see the same development in the Yushalmi. Again, 
everybody seems to be agreeing, although not everybody, that she'er k'sutanam mean those three things. And the question is, which word means which? And Rav Yosef, of course, has this particular angle on she'er, that it's not just about the obligation, but about the method of that obligation of fulfilling it. This, by the way, each one of these things should be an hour, but we're going to do with what, what we can. Rashi, famously in his perush, takes the position of the first, um, the first approach, the first brayta quoted in the in the uh, Gemara, also of an approach that we found in both mechiltot, which is share is mizonot, suta is clothing, and onata is tashmish, straight up, and. Um, now the Rashbam, on the other hand, says she'er is mizonot, ksut is clothing, and onata is housing, from the word ma'on. All right, that's a different take. The the Bechor Shor suggests the same thing, that it may mean housing. Um, we look at the Rambam, and you see the Rambam in uh, in the beginning of Perakid Bet of Hilchot Ishut, talks about the obligations that a husband has towards his wife and the, the obligations a wife has towards her husband. Now, bigadol, I'm just giving you this in, in one very quick presentation. When a couple gets married, there is a whole matrix of obligations, of financial obligations, that connect the two of them. Obligations he has towards her, obligations she has towards him, rights that he has, rights that she has, etc., that are financial, besides other things. And in Masach, in the fourth paragraph of Tubot, in that sugyal that we just saw, there is a uh, a presentation with disputing, dissenting opinions about what the lineup is, about all the obligations the husband has, all the obligations the wife has, and which were nitkan connected which, meaning which corresponded to which. So does she give wages to the husband because the husband's feeding her? And does the husband have to um, bury her because he's getting her mitziot, etc.? question of her obligations is, and which line up with which? We all kind of agree what they are. So you see the Rambam here says, No matter the size of the ketubah. doesn't matter who you're marrying, as long as the legitimate marriage He's obligated 10 obligations and he gains four things. What are the three, the 10 obligations? Three of the obligations the husband has is from the Torah, which is which by the way, the Rambam reads like everybody else is reading that this parasha, this story about the Yamaivriya is referring to marital obligations and the way that we read this the the text is that if the husband mar if the master marries another woman he can't diminish the essential obligations every husband has towards his wife from this former slave girl and that's sherek sutanona what are sherek sutanona so the rambam says like rashi says share is food suit is clothing onata is conjugal relations okay the ramban takes a a different approach. He takes the approach that we already saw mentioned in the in the Gemara and alluded to in what we saw in Rava, which is that Mizonot are dirabanan. And he then goes a little bit further with it. And I'll show you what he says because it's an interesting different take. 
This is the Ramban. Um, and he says as follows. Um, uh, um, we'll start from L'chach Omer. L'chach Omer. I'll mark it here. See it? L'chach Omer. Ki perush she'er b'chol makom basar hadavek v'akarov l'sor shal adam. As we saw earlier, Rebbe's opinion that she'er really refers in Rav Yosef's statement refers to flesh clinging together. Nigzar milashon she'erit, meaning that which is an extension. Klomar she'er besaro, as we find throughout the arayot. Milvad besar gufo, anything that's an extension of your flesh that's not your flesh. V'ikaruah krovim she'er, akol she'er besaro, etc. Good. Now, um, and he brings several psukim to support that. V'ikareha basar and nechal she'er, good. I'm going to tell them k'afar she'er and t'ilim anichet. So the woman is called She'er of her husband. And by the way, we find that in Yerusha also. That's with the Kohen being able to bury his wife, which is not explicit in Parshat Emor. Because going back to the very first union in history, what does Adam say? Or the Torah says it in response to him saying, So they become She'er. What does the Ramban say now? She'era is Kiruv Besara. Now watch what he says about ksuta. Ksuta is ksut mitata, bedclothes. And ona is the actual scheduling of spending time together intimately. Which means the Ramban reads, share ksut and ona, all of, all of them are about intimacy. Share is the method, ona, ksut is the clothing and the environment set up, and ona is the actual intimacy that goes on. That's the Ramban. But there's there's a, there's a difficulty in reading this parsha, so I have to take a moment out to speak about some methodological issue. When we look at a parasha in narrative, we understand that there may be, and this is almost all, all the Rishonim went in this direction. We understand that there may be a. a a number of midrashic approaches to understanding it. And we understand there may be a mainstream midrashic approach to understanding it. And nonetheless, in and we can read the text as is and understand it on its own terms, not in contradiction to the midrash, but saying this is what the pshad is. And the midrash is there to add a new, a new component, a new angle, a new perspective, to embellish and to enhance. But what happens when you're looking at a legal text? It becomes more difficult. It becomes more difficult only because we're a lot shyer about it because we're concerned with looking at a legal text and saying, well, the, the, within the context of the words in the Torah, it may mean X, even though halakhically we interpret it to mean Y. But by the way, that's exactly what we've done in this parsha, because you see that everybody says She'er might mean this and Ksut might mean that and Onam might, well, Ksut were pretty clear on, but Onam might mean that. 
and Sharon and I keep getting switched around and modified. And yet we end up saying, well, we all know what it means, meaning we all know what the halacha is. And the question is how to interpret the words, which means we may have a lot more room to read the text independently without it touching the Midrash Halacha. The Midrash Halacha is the Mesorah. That's what we do in practice. There's this Kiyuvim Doraita. But I'd like to just for a moment, and that's about what we've got left, take a look at this parasha and read it on its own terms and see what we come up with. And perhaps the terminology may be read a little bit differently. Let's start with this. I asked you what that meant. But the simplest explanation is, what were we just introduced to? An Eved Ivri. And what does an Eved Ivri do? He works for six years and he leaves. And we actually come down very hard on him if he chooses not to leave. But six years, then he leaves. seems to imply she doesn't leave after six. Matter of fact, maybe she never leaves. Why would that be? Because unlike an Eved Ivri, who is either selling himself or sold by the Beit Din because he stole, and is there to pay off a debt or to make some money or whatever it may be because he's broke, this is a different story. This is a man selling his daughter, which we, of course, frown on and, and Chazal rip this guy apart. But the guy sells his daughter into servitude with an eye towards this will be her future home. So she doesn't leave after six. And so therefore the assumption is she's going to stay there forever, but she's going to shift <laughs> after six or any <laughs> more. She's going to shift to the appropriate place in the household, which is as a wife. That's why the assumption is she's going to get married. And then we say, but what if not? Meaning the Boyada, meaning the the man, he was she was designated for him. But if he doesn't like her, then what happens? Vehafta, he has to allow a negotiation to get her out. Because otherwise, how she's getting? She's not going to get out. There's no sheish. So we have to find a way to get her out. Now, what's he not allowed to do? He can't sell her to somebody else. Okay, that's pretty straightforward. That's not lo That's a separate piece. He doesn't own her. Now, let's say he marries her off to his, his son. Here's the problem. Every girl who gets married is provided with a dowry. What is the impact of a dowry? The dowry raises her position, her status in the family. That's why there's so much discussion about how much a father has to give. What if a father gave so much and then he became poor by the time the next girl gets married? All of these diunim, because that's going to affect her entire life. She's going to enter the marriage either as somebody of stature and of status and somebody has to respect or not. Now, the father can't do that. The father's out of the picture. So I'd like to suggest that what happens here is, and it's what Pichas suggested, I think. If the man marries him off, her off to his son, he has to treat this girl like he, she was his daughter. Because she doesn't have a father. So he has now become a locus parentis. And he has to provide her with a dowry, which is odd because the dowry is going to his son. But that's what he has to provide. And now, means if he takes another wife for his son. 
She'erak suta ve'onata lo yigra. What is she'erak suta ve'onata? I'm going to suggest that that's the dowry. That's the stuff that she brings in. And onata perhaps being like the Rashbam and the Bechor Short said, uh, um, a place to live. A domicile. Lo yigra. Meaning he's not allowed to diminish from the gifts that a girl normally brings in either because he says, well, she was my slave girl, or because, well, my son's marrying an upright girl, so I'll give her less. No, you can't give her less. And like the Hoyal Moshe and others suggested, really refers to if he doesn't provide all of that for her, then which means that if he doesn't treat this girl like a daughter and provide her with a proper dowry, and not diminish her at all relative to either his son or to his son's other wife, then he has to let her go. Which now changes the complexion of the whole parasha. It means that the default position is when you're selling this girl to this man, she's lining up for kiddushin. She's lining up for marriage. That's why when the man bought her, the money was already cast of kiddushin. She doesn't leave in six. She may never leave. If the master doesn't like her, because the assumption was he would, he doesn't like her, then he's got to arrange for her to be redeemed. He's not allowed to sell her to anybody else. And now, he has one other option, which is to let his son marry her. But if he lets her son marry her, we're in a weird position. And so therefore, he has to provide a dowry for this girl as if she was his daughter, because the father's out. And now, if the, he finds another wife for his son, not a slave girl, he can't diminish her dowry, this girl's dowry. And if he doesn't provide all of that for her, then she has to be able to go out without any, uh, without any, any payment to get her out. So a different way of looking at the parasha. And again, as we see, especially in the world of the Ibn Ezra, in the world of the Rashbam, in the world of other Pashtanim, which, by the way, is almost everybody when it comes to one parsha or another who read a parsha chakika, a parsha of law, and they read it uh, in its con in its context as being different than the midrash halacha. Say this is how we're reading it as a literary text. This is how we're reading it a legal text, but not as a law. As a law, we'll read it, of course, based on the Masorah and understand that she'er ksut and ona refer to the obligations a husband has towards his wife. But in the context here, it actually seems to be much more about the dowry and about the protections that this girl gets when she is sold to another family, ostensibly to remain there forever as a, uh, as a wife.